Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thank you, Bob, for leading us in prayer. Uh, parents, if you want to dismiss your children for Children's Church, you can do that at this time. We do have Children's Church uh, during the sermon time, so kids will be welcome back uh, before the end of the service. Pastor Brian's in the back there to lead the kids to the proper place. And um, yeah, Bob, thanks for praying for our annual meeting tomorrow night. So uh, we've been talking about this last several weeks. Just want to remind you one last time, we're meeting 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary for our annual congregational meeting. Hope you all can make it. Um, if you're wanting more information on our candidates, two men for um, deacon, Brad Kendall, Chris Potts, and then one man, Brian, Brandon Dykstra on the ballot for elder. Uh, we do have um, information sheets about these three guys on the Welcome Center, so you can grab that if you haven't already and take a look at that before tomorrow night. Um, <coughs> also, uh, this meeting will be live streamed, so you can watch it from home. Um, and the link is available there at our website. But I do want to make it clear that you cannot vote from home. <laughs> And uh, if you view from home, it will not help us establish quorum. And so that's very important when you conduct the business of the church. So um, I just want to encourage you to do all that you can to be here in person. That's preferable, but there is a link for viewing it online if you'd like. Visitors are welcome. You don't have to be a member. Uh, if you're new to the church, we'd still love to, to have you join us. Tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. Okay, if you want to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis <clears throat> chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there is a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, and you can pull that out. It would be very helpful for you to have a Bible open in front of you as we go through this text um, about this very famous story called uh, Noah's Ark and the Flood. Um, not sure why that picture is up right now, but um, uh, let's see. That uh, passage, by the way, is on page three of your paperback Bibles. Um, got ahead of myself there a little bit. Last week, we um, looked at one of the most obscure passages in the scriptures um, about the sons of God, the Nephilim, and that kind of thing. Um, and today, we get to one of the most familiar stories in all of the scriptures. Probably all of you are very familiar with the story of the flood in, in Noah's Ark. And so... Uh, you know, this is something that's even pretty well-known in popular culture. And so uh, here's my, my pictures here. Uh, da, 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 da. So, by the way, thank you to Nate Salo and Dan Perkins. We had kind of an emergency here yesterday. The projectors were not working, and, and these guys were uh, diligent in getting these projectors working today. So uh, thanks for all your work. But i got to remember, i got to look behind me and not to the back. So... Anyway, you can go into a store and buy just like a little Noah's Ark toy set. You know, these are probably available at uh, Walmart or certainly on Amazon. Um, there is a, a place down south of Cincinnati called the Ark Encounter where you can go. It's like a museum of uh, Noah's Ark. Maybe some of you have been there. I'd like to go myself. Haven't been there. Um, there was back in 2014 a movie about Noah's Ark, starring Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly, so a pretty well-known movie. Um, so we've got these depictions of Noah and the flood 
all throughout culture, and there's this tendency to kind of look at this story as kind of a cute story. You know, we remember Noah, depictions of Noah, this guy with a robe on and a beard, and, you know, he's bringing all of these cute, cuddly animals in, and they're all frolicking about in the ark, and it's this kind of warm, fuzzy story, as it is very often presented. Um, but as we're about to read the story, what you're going to notice is that it's really not so warm and cuddly. It's not really a cute story at all. Um, it's a story of a cataclysmic event. It's a story of a disaster. It's a story in which every living thing on the earth was destroyed under the wrath of God. That's what the story of Noah and his flood is about. Now, it's not just about that. We're going to see that the grace of God shines through in this story. But it's not really a cute story. And so I'm just trying to prepare you <coughs> for this as we go through this text. And um, we're going to learn a lot here about the judgment of God, but also about the grace of God. So we've got a large text to read. I'm just going to allow you to be seated as I read, because I'm going to start in chapter 6, verse 9, and go all the way through the end of chapter 7. Um, don't want to interrupt the narrative too much. There's even more after that. The story continues in chapters 8 and 9, so we'll be here for um, two or three Sundays. But feel free to remain seated as I read chapter 6, verse 9 through 724, the story of Noah <coughs> and the flood. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and uh, or of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals 
that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the ground and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Holy Spirit, come and please open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Well, you've noticed a lot of repetition uh, in that text, and so it's not necessary for us to cover every single verse, but we can certainly see some uh, themes come out from this passage of Scripture. And I want to look at this from three perspectives. I think there's like three main players here. One is Noah, of course. Uh, the other is the flood itself. And then, of course, the other is God himself. And so we're going to look at this story from these three perspectives. So first of all, let's consider... Uh, Noah, but not just Noah, the righteous Noah. Um, you might remember at the end of the passage last week, the, the passage ended with um, Noah finding favor in the eyes of God. And so we've been considering these two lines of descendants from the woman and from the serpent, the woman's line going through Seth and the serpent's line going through Cain. And now we're seeing that that woman's line going through Seth is now continuing to now move through Noah, God is keeping these redemptive promises alive. And yet we saw also last week that there was this very sobering description of mankind in chapter 6, verse 5, that 
um, all of the intentions of our hearts are only evil continually. So there's this very negative evaluation of humankind that everybody is totally depraved with sin, and yet there's one exception, one exception in all the world, and it's this man, Noah. And verse 9 describes him very clearly. Uh, he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Now, we shouldn't understand this to mean sinless. Um, Job also was described as blameless, but we don't call Job sinless, nor was Noah sinless. The scripture says if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So there is no such thing, aside from Jesus, of course, as a sinless man. But nonetheless, Noah was, was righteous. He was blameless. That is, his pattern of life was something very distinct from the way the rest of the world lived. And that's why you see that phrase. I think it's very important that he was blameless in his generation. Compared to the rest of the world, this was a righteous man. Not a perfect man, but a man who stood out. A man who was different, a man who had not been conformed to the pattern of the world. That's Noah. Righteous, blameless. He also walked with God. We saw that phrase used to describe Enoch, remember, the one who was translated immediately up to be with God. This was Noah's life. He communed with God. He spoke with God. He fellowshiped with God. Uh, this is a good example of just what it is to be a Christian. It's not seeking perfection. Nobody's perfect. None of us is perfect. But what God desires is that we walk with him through life. And that's what Noah was doing. Uh, we also see Noah is a family man in verse 10. He's got three sons. Uh, if you skip down to 618, we find that he uh, has a wife. And that these three sons, they also have wives. And so we've got eight people total in Noah's family. But we also see here, along with his righteousness and blamelessness in Noah, that he is a man who is eager to submit himself to God. He's eager to obey God in every circumstance. And so here's how we, we see this. Um, God announces in verse 13, he's going to make an end of all flesh. He's seen the wickedness of mankind, so he's going to do something about it. And so he gives a command to Noah to, verse 14, build an ark. Noah, I want you to build an ark. And he gives various descriptions here about how this ark is to be constructed. It's to uh, be made of gopher wood. Uh, verse 14, there's going to be rooms in this ark, and I want you to cover it <coughs> with pitch. Verse 15 gives us the, the size of this ark. Uh, these cubits would be translated today to a craft that would be 450 feet long by 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. So that's a pretty big craft. I mean, it's not unheard of in our day and age, but back in this time, it, it would have seemed astounding and, and overwhelming. A very large craft. Uh, we have other directions here, you know, make a roof and, and put a door and make sure that there are three decks. And so God goes on, you know, gives Noah these very distinct details about how this ark is to be built. And the reason why is because in verse 17, I'm going to bring a flood. I mean, you kind of wonder what was Noah thinking when God was telling him to build an ark before there was any really direction about 
the reason why. And now God says, here's why. A flood is going to come, and when this flood comes, every single living thing on earth is going to die. Now, I wonder if you put yourself in Noah's place, how you might respond to God's command. What would you have thought? Does this sound reasonable to you? <laughs> Has the world ever seen a flood like this? How is Noah possibly going to build an ark of this size? What is he going to do? But look at the very end of the chapter, verse 22. It's this beautiful verse of Noah. After all that God has commanded him, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He was eager to obey. He was exceptional in his willingness to do exactly what God commanded him to do. And this command is given not to anybody else but Noah. Noah here is willing to stand alone in obedience to God. He is willing to do the thing that would um, bring upon him the scorn of the world. And he is doing this in an evil and wicked generation, the only one willing to do this. And we see here such an example for us, such an inspiration for us, I mean, an application point, friends, is simply this. Are you willing to stand out in this generation? Are you willing to be known as one who is obedient to God when the whole rest of the world refuses to be obedient to God? Are you willing to pursue blamelessness and righteousness in this generation, which is equally as wicked as Noah's generation? Noah was a righteous man. We also learn that uh, Noah actually spoke about uh, this command that God gave him. Maybe you, you've heard that Noah was a preacher, and you get this picture of Noah telling people about this coming judgment, but we don't see that in Genesis, actually. We have to go forward to 2 Peter chapter 2. That's where it says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So Noah did proclaim this. So you get this idea of him running around saying, hey, God told me that there's a flood coming. And you all better get ready for it. Um, these kind of common depictions of Noah building the ark and people coming by and laughing and scoffing. I mean, it doesn't say that in the scripture. But we can conclude that that probably happened. People probably thought he was nuts. Not only was he building this ark, but he was telling these people about this miraculous, crazy, global flood. There's a movie called... Uh, Take Shelter came out in 2011 starring Michael Shannon. And not about Noah's flood, but Michael Shannon in that movie is kind of a Noah figure. Because in this movie, Michael Shannon gets these visions of a coming storm. He dreams these things when he goes to bed. He, he, he wakes up and he sees these strange things. And he's convinced there's a storm coming. And he wants to protect his family. He's got a wife and a little girl, and so he begins building a shelter. And he just commits himself to building the shelter, and he kind of neglects other things, and people start to think he's crazy. And his wife starts to suggest that he go see a psychiatrist. And he's just so obsessed with this. People think he's nuts. And there's a scene later in the movie where there's like this pitch-in meal with a bunch of friends, and, and there's an incident that, that happens, and and Michael Shannon, he, he kind of gets upset, and he, he stands up, and he says to everybody, he says, there is a storm coming like you've never seen, and not one of you is prepared for it. And I saw that movie, and I thought, that's Noah. <laughs> that's Noah. 
telling the world about a coming cataclysmic flood and pointing out to people that they're not ready. And those are very, the very words that could be on our lips today as Christians and followers of Jesus. There, there is a coming judgment. And as we say this, just like with Noah and just like with Michael Shannon, we might be thought of as nuts. But the scriptures tell us it's going to happen. And so Noah, in his righteousness and in his obedience to God, builds the ark and proclaims the coming judgment to all who would hear it. There's one other thing that I want to mention. This is a bit of a a side point regarding Noah. Um, It it might seem like I'm getting off the subject here, but it has to do with baptism, actually. And and so I have to make this point because um, of the way we practice baptism as Presbyterians, there are different views on how baptism should be practiced. And you know that here we... We baptize the children of believing families, uh, and we think Scripture calls for that. And not all of us agree with that, and I understand that, but I I want you to note something here. Notice here that Noah is said to be righteous. He gets on the ark, but nothing is said about his wife and his sons and his sons' wives about their righteousness. We don't know if they were really believers. We don't know what their spiritual condition was like. It was Noah who was righteous. And because of the righteousness of Noah, his family members benefited. They got to go on the ark. Not because of anything in them, but because of the righteousness of the man who stood as the head of the family. This is the way God has worked throughout the generations and certainly in the Old Testament. That is, he he relates to households. It's not that he doesn't relate to individuals, but he relates to individuals primarily in terms of how we fit into certain groups, and particularly family groups. Now, <clears throat> if we go ahead to 2 Peter, notice this. Notice what Peter says. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism... Which corresponds to this? What Peter is saying here is that Noah's ark and Noah on the ark with his family is a picture of how baptism should work. There's a connection between the two. And this is one passage that we would point to as a support for why we baptize not just professors of faith, those who come forth, born again, declaring their faith in Jesus, but also the members of their household, their children. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that Noah's sons and sons' wives were actually saved in the sense that they belonged to God and were going to go to heaven. And as you hear us say over and over again, we don't mean that when we baptize households. We don't mean that baptism saves the children. We just mean that households should be regarded as a whole based on the head of the household and the rest receive the benefits of baptism. And I think Peter is pointing us to that in 1 Peter 3. All right, I know that raises a lot of questions. We're just getting to the tip of the iceberg on that subject. If you want to talk further about it, that that would be great. But uh, let's move on. The righteous Noah. But now we get to the devastating flood. The flood itself. Um, Here we have chapter 7. Uh, Moving forward, chapter 7, verse 4, and God gives some more detail here about the flood that's coming. In seven days, he says, 
I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made will I will blot out from the face of the ground. And then another description of God's obe- uh, Noah's obedience. He did all that the Lord had commanded him. So <coughs> the rain is coming, 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I mean, if this sounds to you kind of crazy that there could be a flood of these proportions, I, I don't know, just think about what it's like when it rains really hard. Uh, when it rains hard for just one afternoon at my house, I can look outside and see our whole road in front of us flooded. I look out my backyard and the water is, is standing throughout the yard. Um, that's just in an afternoon. I mean, we're talking here about rain for 40 days and 40 nights. A hard rain, a strong rain, consistently, day and night. It's not hard to understand how a flood could result from that. (coughs) And so in verse 11, we see that indeed the flood occurs. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open. It starts pouring rain. And just as God predicted, verse 12, it goes on 40 days and 40 nights. But one thing I want you to notice here in verse 11 is the specificity of the time that the flood happened. The 600th year of Noah's life, the second month, and the 17th day. Now, Moses is writing this. It seems very clear that what Moses wants us all to see is that He recorded the date when this happened so that you and I could know that this really happened. That this was a historical event. Moses put it down on his calendar. He wants us to know that this is not a myth. This is not a legend. This is not just a fairy tale that's been handed down over the generations. There's a specific date when this happened. This, This is a historical event, friends. It's important that we we believe that. There are lots of debates um, about whether this was a universal flood or a local flood. Some people look at geological evidence and they say it couldn't have covered the whole earth. It seems like maybe it was just covering uh, just the land uh, in which Noah lived at the time. Um, (coughs) But one thing's for sure is that if you look throughout various cultures in history, Multiple cultures have some kind of description of a flood event in their ancient literature. The Greeks talk about a flood. The Babylonians talk about a flood. The Hindus talk about a flood. The Chinese talk about a flood. Now, they all give kind of slightly different details, (laughs) and um, things happen a little differently than what we find in the Genesis account. But when you've got all those different cultures saying something happened, I think what we can conclude from that is something really did happen. (laughs) We shouldn't be bothered by the disagreement in the details. I think in Genesis we get the definitive account of what happened. But if this really did happen, it shouldn't surprise us to think that there are others who took note of it and recorded it in their cultural literature. And by the way, Jesus himself refers to the, uh, the flood as historical in the New Testament. And so that should be enough for us to agree with Jesus and say, yes, this happened. This is real. Now, (coughs) this presence of water, I think, is something interesting to consider. Uh, I don't know if you've thought much about the theme of water in the Bible. It actually shows up quite a bit. I mean, water was present at the very beginning in 
Genesis. You've got uh, you know, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, the parting of the waters in the Exodus. You've got Jordan, uh, the Jordan River with Joshua going through the Jordan. Um, you've got rivers flowing out of the Garden of Eden. And, and then, of course, you've got baptism in the New Testament. And so water plays this very important role, very symbolic role throughout scriptures, the scriptures. But also we see that water has this kind of, kind of dual role. Like water can be really good and really bad. You know, water is, we love water, right? I mean, it's very, very valuable. We, we, we drink water when we're thirsty. We jump in water when we're hot in the summer. We use water to, to clean ourselves and clean our homes and clean our cars. I mean, water has a lot of very positive uses, but water can be really dangerous too, can't it? Water can kill you. And that's why they say when you're driving, if you see a flash flood, don't drive into the water. You know, you think you can get through it and you find out you can't and that water will sweep you away. You hear about tsunamis coming, you know, and destroying cities. I mean, water has this lethal ability to be dangerous. And that's what we see here in this depiction, the dual role of water. We see it doing two things. We see it, first of all, as an instrument of destruction. Now, that's probably pretty common. We understand that, but that's certainly what the text tells us. The flood is devastating on the earth. If you look ahead to verse 21, 22, 23, look at these comprehensive statements. All flesh died that moved on the earth. All swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. All mankind, verse 22, everything on the dry land. Verse 23, every living thing is destroyed. God uses the flood in this case to destroy. And by the way, these comprehensive descriptions certainly seem to suggest a universal flood, seem to suggest that it's everything on earth, not just life in one localized part of the world. That's what the text would seem to indicate. But the water is being used to destroy here. It's being used as an instrument of judgment. What God really here is doing is taking things all the way back to the beginning. Back to Genesis 1, the first few verses when we read about the cosmos being formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep of the water. That's what's happening here. It's, it's un, what God is doing is undoing creation, going back to the beginning so that he can start again. Undoing creation so that there can be a recreation and we'll learn more about that as we continue through the story in the coming weeks so there's water as the instrument of destruction but friends there's also water being used here as an instrument of salvation it's used in both ways look at verse 17 <coughs> chapter 7 the flood continues 40 days on the earth the waters increased, and what? They bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The same water that was destroying the world was also lifting up and saving Noah and his family in the ark. Doing the exact same event. You get this picture of these contrasts. It's like outside the ark after God shut him in. You can just hear that door just slamming. Boom. Door is shut. 
Noah and his family probably thinking, oh my goodness, how long are we going to be in this thing? Are we ever getting out of here? But there's this distinction. The door is shut outside. There's just destruction and death and darkness by the water. But inside, there's light, there's life, there's hope. And the same water destroying the world is lifting up the ark for salvation. What we see here pretty clearly, friends, is (laughs) that in this flood, there was one way to be saved, and it was to be on that ark. That was the only option that anybody had. You reject getting on that ark, and you choose death. And this applies to us today, friends. Points us to the gospel. There is only one way for us to be saved today, and it's through Jesus Christ. There's no other options. Just as people who rejected the ark would die, so those who reject Jesus today will die. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to escape the wrath of God. Here's what Warren Gage says. As they were safe with Noah in the ark, we may be safe with Christ in the church. Those for whom Christ is captain will sail safely through the waters of wrath, finding everlasting rest in the new heavens and the new earth. So, the water comes, destroys some, saves others. And this is a historical flood, something that really happened. And just as real as this flood was hundreds of years ago, so is there a very real judgment coming in the future. And Jesus speaks to this as if this is just as historical as what happened in Noah's day. Here's Jesus Christ. In those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. You see this picture in Noah's day, people just living life, enjoying themselves, marrying, drinking, going to work, hanging out, drinking, having fun thinking nothing of the end, no conception of judgment. Who is God? Who cares about God? I'm living now. i got one life to live. I'm going to make it good right now. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to do what I want. And out of nowhere came this flood, surprising them, something they never anticipated. And friends, it should make our hearts deeply concerned to think that there are thousands and millions of people today living in exactly the same way, going about their business, refusing to believe that there's any kind of coming judgment, and yet Jesus says it's going to be exactly the same way when Jesus comes. Total surprise, and it's going to be over, and the opportunity to repent will come to an end. So there's a devastating flood, but friends, there's one last thing, and that is we see A gracious God at work. There's a gracious God at work. We've got to think of two things here also. Uh, Hopefully you're agreeing with me now that this is not such a cute story. Uh, And it's not just because of some kind of random weather event either. One thing we see here is that it is God who is acting in judgment here. This is God's doing. Going all the way back to the the beginning of this account, verses 11 through 13, God saw the earth. He saw it was corrupt. He saw all flesh had corrupted their way. 
He views the evil and wickedness of the world, and he says, that's it, I'm making an end of this. This is not a God who's, you know, just happened to be in a bad mood one day. It's not a cranky, bad-tempered God. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a God who is committed to exercising justice in the world. He is going to make right everything that is wrong. God is not going to tolerate evil and wickedness forever. It's God who's doing something about this. Um, there's a guy named Vince Gilligan. He's the one who created the, the show Breaking Bad that was pretty popular y- years ago. And uh, Vince Gilligan said, he identifies as an agnostic, but he says, I can't be an atheist. And the reason why, he says, is I can't imagine a world in which there is no cosmic justice. In his mind, there's just, there's got to be judgment one day upon all the evil and wickedness that has been committed in, in the world. And that's what we're seeing here in the story of the flood. It's cosmic justice that God is bringing on the world. And once again, if we look to Peter, there's a lot in the New Testament that helps us understand Noah's flood. But Peter says this, the world that then existed and was deluged with water and perished, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So again, just like Jesus, Peter is saying, referring to Noah, saying there's a judgment that happened, and it's going to happen again. Just like it happened in Noah's day, there's going to be a destruction on the day of judgment when Jesus comes again. So God is acting in judgment, but friends, God also acts in grace. He also acts in grace here. If you go to 6, verse 18, look what he does. He says, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth, verse 17, and then verse 18, and Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come in, you, your sons, your wife, your sons, with you. I am going to covenant. I'm going to commit to you, Noah, is what God is saying. I'm going to make a promise to you, Noah. It's a promise that I am going to save you from this coming wrath. We'll talk more about what a covenant is when we get to chapter 9. There's more detail about it there. But for right now, just see this, that God makes a promise to save. He's not going to save everybody. That's very clear here in this story. And the same applies today. But nonetheless, God offers grace through his covenant promises. He offers the opportunity to escape the coming judgment in his grace. And it's not just a promise to Noah and his family. There's just something really wonderful about the fact that the promise is made to the animals too. And so finally we see, I mean it's repeated over and over here in this text that God says to Noah, I want you to get the animals. I want you to get male and female. I want you to keep them alive so that they can reproduce. I want you to get birds and creeping things and livestock. <coughs> Excuse me, and winged creatures. I want you to get all sorts, all kinds of animals so that the animal kingdom can, can thrive and can be perpetuated. And by the way, I think this is maybe another argument for the idea of a universal flood rather than a local flood. Because if this were just a local flood, then why would God be so intent on Noah getting all these animals on the ark if there were animals all throughout the rest of the world who could then perpetuate themselves? But it seems here that God wants the animal kingdom to continue, and so therefore (coughs) 
they need to be brought on this ark because if they don't, they will die. And so we just see here a picture of just the comprehensiveness of the gospel. The whole creation affected by the fall and by sin. And in the gospel, Jesus is committed to reclaiming the whole creation in his life, death, and resurrection. Not just souls, but bodies too. Not just souls, but the earth as well. Not just people, but animals of all sorts. It's one of the most frequent questions that I get from children. Will my pets be in heaven? Will I see my dog or my cat in heaven? Well, I don't know if you'll see your dog or cat in heaven. I'm not sure about that, but when we get to the new earth, it's going to be populated by animals. There's going to be animals there. Chapter 9 is going to tell us even more about that. The gospel we believe in is a comprehensive cosmic gospel that covers it all. We're not just looking at souls going to heaven. We're looking at a gospel that reclaims everything lost in the fall. Noah's flood and God's grace in this story is what illustrates that perhaps more than just about anything else we find in the scriptures. Well, <clears throat> maybe all this talk of a coming judgment has you worried. <clears throat> maybe you find this a little scary. Um, you know your own life. You, you know that in your life there are plenty of things that you've done that you shouldn't have done. And you know that there are a lot of things that you should have done that you haven't done. And there might be deep secrets that you're harboring in your heart. Things that you've said and thought and, and you're, you're just you're terrified of meeting God on that last day. That could be you today. I, I want to encourage you by saying this. If that's your response there's a sense in which that's a good sign. That shows that you're, you're sensitive to your moral condition. It, it shows that you, 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 you long to be freed from the guilt and shame you know that you carry. To be completely unconcerned about the coming judgment, you know, that's, that's probably more of a problem. To have some sensitivity about this is a good thing. If the judgment day scares you, I want to say, that's good, but don't just stay there in your fear. Don't, don't remain scared, friends. What you can do is move to Jesus. You, you can look to Christ. You, you can believe in him. You can receive what he has done. You can put your trust in him. You can turn away from all of your efforts to save yourself and say, Jesus, please be my savior. Come and save me. And he will do that. The scripture says in, in Romans, it, it says that we are justified by his blood. And as a result of that, we are saved from the wrath of God. If you want to be saved from the wrath of God, there's only one way. You've got to get on the ark of Jesus Christ. Not by trying to do better, not by being a good person, not by being more religious, but by turning from your sin, repenting, and resting fully and completely in what Jesus has done for you. Have you done that? If you are a Christian, you don't need to fear the coming wrath of God. You can look ahead with confidence to that final day. It is true that the waters of judgment are mighty, but the grace of God and the gospel is mightier still. In fact, God is mighty to save. <laughs> He's mighty to save any who would turn to him, and we're going to sing that right now but let's pray first lord we thank you for your word we thank you for 
preserving it for us in your providence. We thank you for the example of Noah as a righteous man in his generation, but we thank you more for the perfectly righteous God-man Jesus who has come to lay down his life for sinners like us. Thank you, Lord. We also praise you. We know that judgment is good, that you will judge wickedness, and we praise you for that. But thank you for making a way for us to escape your wrath through your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing to close our service.